0: Hi, I'm Adam Miller,
1: and I'm Sarah Sweet,
0: and welcome to Food on the Radio. Hi, Sarah, how you doing?
1: Hey, Adam, how are you?
0: I'm great, and it's the perfect fall morning.
1: You know, I am so excited that we are fully entering the season of our overlord pumpkin spice. Pumpkin and autumn, soups, stews, pies. Goodbye, summer. See you next year.
0: Well, it's funny that you bring up pumpkins. I went uh, to buy a book for a gift for someone. I went to the big Barnes & Noble. And, Ooh. and you know, we forget because they used to be in lots of other places, paper magazines. But there's still these huge racks of paper magazines For for you young people, paper magazines are magazines that are folded together into little books, and they're shiny, (laughs) and you turn the pages, and they have pictures and stories. So it's kind of like it's kind of like having a computer without having to log on. (laughs) If you're like on a page, anyway, what I couldn't believe about it, and this does trust me, this this divergence goes to pumpkins. I promise, and I sent you a picture of it. Is there is a wall of food magazines, cooking magazines, recipe magazines, many of them by House and Garden and, you know, various other conglomerates. I
1: thought magazines were a thing of the past. What are you talking about?
0: Tell me about it. So did I. But when it comes to cooking, holy mackerel, it was quite something. I think I sent you a picture that just shows what must be a hundred different cooking magazines. And I do think it's instigated, especially by fall because it's the lead into the holidays. People are a little more indoors and it's soups and stews and roasts and all the stuff you and I love to do. And because they're more fun to cook, right?
1: 100%.
0: I mean, you're right. I think when this time of year
1: rolls around, there will be magazines that like, I mean, I haven't been into a big bookstore where you'd see this many but I know at the grocery checkout there's issues that are dedicated to just one thing they'll be like this is just the cookie magazine for the holidays or this is only about pies well where you see you I think you told me you saw one that was just entirely pumpkin recipe
0: yes the cover the cover of the magazine is America's favorite pumpkin recipes and I don't know if the nation itself has a favorite recipe uh, compendium of pumpkin-related <laughs> things. But nonetheless, there's a magazine that says there are. I just thought it was really funny that there was an entire magazine dedicated to pumpkin recipes. And, and I did leaf through it because um, sometimes I will, and I confess this, both in libraries and bookstores, I will actually take a picture of a recipe as opposed to buying the book. Oh, know. my goodness. This I is know. what's wrong with the economy. I know. I know. I know.
1: Did you find a favorite pumpkin amongst the favorite pumpkin recipes?
0: I found what what I found the most intriguing and least favorite in my brain. And I did take a picture of it just because I thought it was funny. It is a sausage and pumpkin lasagna.
1: I don't even eat meat anymore. And that sounds delicious.
0: See, this is where one of us has to make this because I find this gross, not gross. Because I find that gross.
1: <laughs> I I disagree. If you imagine any like butternut squash ravioli is very popular and pumpkin, once you start, I mean, it's not like chunks of pumpkin, it's probably a puree and it's probably exactly like butternut squash ravioli, but with the added benefit of sausage.
0: Yes. um, I suppose to me, it's how to take a sausage and ruin it by adding pumpkin to it.
1: I got to ask you, what do you hate? I mean, what's wrong with pumpkin? Do you
0: like butternut squash? I do like. I do think you're right about the fact that once you've reduced pumpkin to the, you know, to the the flesh of it that is peeled and cooked, it's a lot. Pumpkins are a lot of work for I think a minimum reward, <laughs> um, because squash is a lot easier to make. Um,
1: well, I mean, if you're talking about like going out the gourd as it grows in the ground, but like you can just get canned pumpkin.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm assuming it's like as a spread. Um, but anyway, maybe we should cook this and see how it comes out. I don't, neither of us are going to do that, right?
1: <laughs> I'm 100% going to do this, but I'm going to use the fake plant sausage.
0: Right, right. Which I'm, I'm t- which I think, the best place for fake sausages and meats is in you know mushy things like chilies and 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 gross uh, pumpkin lasagnas.
1: <laughs> listen, listen, this sounds
0: pretty judgmental for someone who's never even eaten this dish. That's true. I did feel guilty enough to buy one magazine, and I what, bu- what did you buy? What did you buy? I bought the Cooks Illustrated 130 Fall Recipes.
1: 130. Uh- <laughs>
0: 130. I'm sure it's just a collection of all the recipes that you could say are fall. There's a lot of pork involved. I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> for some reason, people think fall is pork time. There's a lot of them. When we peek about uh, pet peeves or things you have to do or habits, one of them for me is no matter what magazine it is, when I open up a magazine that has to do with cooking, I, I always skip over the list of recipes that are in the issue because it spoils to me the surprise of finding them as you leaf through.
1: I mean, that makes sense.
0: Because it's just no fun, because you can just sort of see the list and go, oh, I want to make that or not make that. And half the time, you know, we realize in most cases, all the recipes we collect are almost in some ways repeated. There's probably really, I wouldn't say globally, but at least in America, (laughs) there's probably 100 basic recipes that in some form or another are repeated. And when you get to sort of holiday time, Thanksgiving and Christmas issues of magazines, you pretty much know there's going to be a turkey on at least one of the four magazines that have to do with cooking when it comes to Thanksgiving. There's only so many ways you can do things.
1: I mean, there's only so many ways you can publish in a magazine to do things. (laughs) But I bet there's some weird ways people or interesting ways people do stuff that we wouldn't even imagine.
0: Right, like sausage and pumpkin squeezed together.
1: Well, but that's in a magazine, so it's got to be a little bit more popular.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So anyway, let's get to the the usual order here and um, talk about what we cooked last week. So Sarah, what did you cook last week?
1: Well, I made... I'm not saying I'm proud of it. I'm a little bit proud of it. I, um, Steph has had been sick. He had a cold, not COVID, um, but he was just feeling really bad. And he'd been doing so much of the cooking around even when he was sick. But then one day he was just like, couldn't even be bothered. So I was like, I'm going to make dinner (laughs) finally, because I've just been working so much, whatever. Um, But it was too late to go to the store. So not really but for, for my for my um for me it was too late to go to the store so i said i'm going to just make a dish with whatever i have in this refrigerator and amazingly we had some leftover rice and this is not that groundbreaking of a tip but if you just have some leftover rice and you can shortcut that part of waiting for rice to cook out of the equation you can just make a great one pan kind of fried rice situation with whatever you have in your fridge. I started by just sauteing up an onion and some garlic in the pan. And I really, this was not planned. I just was playing jazz. I went to the fridge. I had carrot. I had fennel. I think there was some celery and maybe some strange end of a red pepper. We had some garden tomatoes and I just put it, all in the pan with my leftover rice, and then I just added a strange litany of flavors on top of it. I put in some, I did put in some soy sauce. I put in some granulated garlic. I put in red pepper flakes, pomegranate molasses, and Frank's Red Hot.
0: <laughs> so it wasn't really like an Asian fried rice. It doesn't sound like there was like any soy sauce or sesame sesame oil or... Actually,
1: no, I did put soy sauce in and a little bit of sesame oil, but then I basically buried those flavors with other flavors, making these third and fourth heretofore unknown flavors um, that you get when you combine sesame, soy, Frank's Red Hot and pomegranate molasses.
0: That certainly has a kind of a sweet and sour sort of feel to it. Did it have a sweet and sour feel to it?
1: Partway through, I was tasting it. I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know about this. Good thing he's sick. He's not going to really taste it. But as I kept adding and adjusting and adjusting, um, it actually came out really good. It was it was savory. It was a little bit sweet. And I feel like I did end up with a dish that had like, flavored dimensions going on. And I used up all the about-to-go-bad vegetables in the fridge. So two birds, one stone. It was a success.
0: Well, I'm, and and I praise you for for your way of keeping from wasting food. So all power to you. And just to remind listeners or listener, Steph is your richly bearded and incredibly resourceful husband who makes all kinds of things that almost go to the sort of, you know, mountain man, Grizzly Adams, kind of self-sufficient way of uh, preparing foods from from uh, yeast starters or sourdough starters to soda pop.
1: I should report, yes, yes. All of what you said is true. And he recently made a new shrub, which we've talked about before. So there are simple syrups, which are only sweet. And then there are shrubs, which are a simple syrup that is has vinegar in it. So it's both sweet and tart. And they're known as like drinking vinegars or shrubs. And you can add them to carbonated water or whatever whatever you're drinking. And he's been making, he's been experimenting with a lot of different flavors. And also in the efforts of not wasting what may be about to go bad in the fridge, he made a carrot, parsley ginger shrub that sounds more like it's like a wellness tonic or something. <laughs> when added, you know, then we carbonate the water and add that shrub to it. It's like, I can't even describe it's indescribable. It's wild with the parsley and the carrot, but then the ginger, like. It's so odd, but it's so refreshing. It just, it tastes like a very sophisticated ginger ale or like, Mm -hmm. it was fantastic. But he is a mountain man with a beard who makes bread and shrubs. And hydroponic microgreens. And that, yeah. He actually recently was having bad luck with trying to grow cilantro microgreens. They didn't come out so well, but the number one greens he's made so far are those sunflower right um, the sunflower seed greens they're fantastic but stay tuned he's um going to be beginning a new he's going to get some new equipment and start over so we'll um we'll keep you informed on uh,
0: microgreens 2.0 so can shrubs also be used basically it sounds sort of like that they could also be used as you know um, pickling liquids you know well I mean, it's almost like your pickling liquid could
1: become a shrub, but if, I don't know that you would start with a shrub to pickle something in it, but you could wind up with what's left after you've done the pickling, the act of the pickling, because you have to heat up everything, you know, that could wind you up with a shrub. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure (laughs) it would be good in a soda, but maybe it would.
0: I read from time to time, either in a magazine or in the New York Times or something where they talk about making infused oils. And I find that there's no point in it to be really honest because either you keep, because when you have a flavored oil and you're cooking, then you say, the minute I use this, this is gonna be the flavor as opposed to what I could add to it. I, I guess I don't, I find that I end up not, I had a garlic infused oil and it created a different garlicky flavor. And then you're like, well, I don't really know if I want to use garlic with it. I I, I, find, I find it to be sort of imposing to have a, an infused oil.
1: I don't know. I think it depends on how you're using it. I feel like infused oils that I have used or made and then used were for more like a dressing where you would taste yeah. it more yeah. by itself or using it to dip bread in. So it's just kind of it is on its own. I don't know if I would yeah an infused oil as much, but if you were making something that would like if you have a rosemary infused olive oil, I feel like that flavor would stick around even after you've started the cooking process.
0: Yeah, it'll linger for sure.
1: When we're back from the break, Japanese fried chicken, steamer tweezers, and a Wellfleet shout-out. You're listening to Food on the Radio on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. The voice, the spirit of Cape Cod. You can also find us at WOMR or
0: Adam what did you cook this week oh I'm so glad you asked um so I'm gonna go to something that usually you have know, put steam coming out of your ears but when you f- but let me finish because it's not as bad as you think I was looking through okay. the- well because I was looking through the New York Times cooking app um is
1: this going to involve the microwave?
0: no not the microwave okay. but it involves the new york times and I, I it is you know over i'm overly reliant on it but in this case i did something really unique because what i didn't realize about it was that it had a video component to it and it sort of led me into oh let me watch this video the 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 summary of it is i made something that i've had over the years uh in travels and in america itself which is that really crispy japanese uh fried chicken, which is known as karaagi. Um, oh, and- yeah. And it's usually done as like an appetizer. They're sort of like, basically, they're very crispy, kind of flavorful, heavily marinated, uh, you know, fried chicken nuggets. And I almost never fry things because I always feel weird about the, the leaving of oil, of having all this oil that you don't know what to do with. But I said, okay, let me just try it this one time, because I've always wanted to make it. The food writer is a guy named Eric Kim, and it was actually a project where he went all around to all these sort of trendy and different types of places in um, New York City, trying different versions of karaage. And then after that, he goes to his little kitchen in his apartment in New York, and he makes what he's sort of tested out as he thinks the easy, best karaage. And so I watched the video and said, I can do this. I'm going to do it it doesn't take as much oil as some because you can use a small i have sort of a small dutch oven it's like a mini you and i used my thermometer my i guess what do you like candy thermometer also also works for oil and i made it and um so here's here's my review of what i did i watched the video it was really fun I made it. Uh, it's it's kind of a, more of a process than I thought. And just so people know, the recipe is very simple in terms of the cooking of it, because it's just uh, an egg bath and then cornstarch. That's it. The marinade is kind of the key to where the sort of tastiness of it is. And then also what you decide to dip it in. But I was very happy because I'd never really made a fried chicken. And part of that is because it's very big. It's very splattery. It's a lot of oil. And it was delicious. But I don't know if I would do it again, because once again, I had this like two thirds of a quart of cooked oil that I had to dispose of. And it bothers me to have that much sort of waste. I know it's sort of silly because I probably use that much oil in one way or another all the time. So I don't know if I'd make it again because it sort of is like this is a lot of work for something in a restaurant. Um, but it was I think it would be fun to do with other people because it's a great little way of it's it's a kind of you want to eat it right after you cooked it. I will say it was actually delicious. The marinade was really good and the video was really fun. It's in the New York Times. It's by Eric Kim Karaage, I think is K A R A A G E. And uh, it's really cool. They ain't nobody here but us chickens. They ain't nobody here at all. So calm yourself and stop that fuss.
1: I wanted to just do a little local awareness shout out to an initiative called Wellfleet Dines Out. And this has been going on through September, but the last day is October 19th. And what it is, it's a number of restaurants in Wellfleet. Um, are donating a portion of the proceeds, if you dine there on a certain night, to the Wellfleet Council on Aging. So there's just a few nights left. Tonight, October 4th, Max Shack is the restaurant that, if you dine at it tonight, will donate a portion of the proceeds to the Wellfleet Council on Aging. And going forward, I guess there's three more. Sunday, October 18th, the restaurant is Block and Tackle. Thursday, October 12th is Pearl Restaurant. And the final night, which is Thursday, October 19th, it is the Seashore Kitchen and Bar. So if you're looking to support the local restaurants and the Wellfleet Council on Aging, you can do both at once on those nights. And we'll share the link on our social media.
0: That's really great. I'm also glad to hear that many places are open till October. That's the other thing about this time of year. It's my favorite time of year because there's still a bunch of restaurants that are seasonal. They're still open that I wait until September or October to go to because I don't have to wait.
1: Speaking of Wellfleet
0: and dining
1: out, don't forget, everybody, the Wellfleet Oyster Fest is coming up October 14th and 15th. It is rain or shine. And the way this year has been going, that's a, <laughs> it's probably going to know. rain, but it happens either way. It's definitely um, become quite a wild weekend, but there is a lot of stuff going on. There's mainly oysters. So enjoy those. And don't forget, they do not allow dogs anywhere at the festival. So if you think you're going to walk your dog down there and check it out, think again.
0: It's also a good thing to to announce both as a warning and an announcement, because there are some people that say, oh, that's the time where I'll just know not to try to drive into Wellfleet. (laughs) right, (laughs)
1: I mean, you have 10 days until many people descend upon this tiny little area. But yes, watch out, it's coming, or don't forget and enjoy.
0: Right, right. Uh, The perfect time to go to P-Town and have oysters. It reminds me of another funny local thing that happened. I had an old friend of mine visit from Seattle And he liked seafood and um, he's pretty adventurous, but I wasn't sure how adventurous because we went to a local Outer Cape eatery, you know, typical fishy place. And I had, he said, what are steamers? And, you know, being from Seattle, he'd had what they call steamed clams, which are basically like a Manila or like a little cherry stone type clam, a Pacific version of that, that they just steamed a little. Uh And I, and he said, I said, it's not that (laughs) I said, I love steamers. But not everybody's into the whole process of making them edible. Yes. And uh, um, we won't get into <laughs> the details, but everybody who knows, knows. So I said, well, I'll order them because if you don't like them, I'll eat them anyway. I'm happy to say once he got the basic process of how you get it to an edible uh, state, um, he loved them. But it was very funny because when they brought it, he said, "Oh, I never would have known to use the first bowl, which is the clam juice. Um, He said, I I never would have known unless you showed me that you use that to rinse the grid off. And I said, yeah. (laughs) And that's only part of the process, as we all know. But he had a little trouble at first pulling it out and getting everything done correctly. But he loved them. I know that you won't go near them. Uh, but I was very happy to in- to um, have an initiation of a new steam clam lover.
1: I mean, I wish I could like them because I do love foods that include a ritual. You know, I do. It's appealing to me. I am from Cape Cod. Steamers are a thing. I just am so
0: grossed out. I can't <laughs> handle it you're not the only one um but it was fun and it reminded me um that the french do this thing that i never see americans doing and that sounded really pretentious but i don't do it either so it's only when they do it which is when they order like steamed mussels of any sort after they eat one muscle they use that muscle to pinch the other muscle meat out of the muscle shells so they use the muscle shell as like tweezers why
1: that's ingenious leave it to the french right
0: I guess so. Um, and they all do it. When I've been in France or Belgium or even Montreal, you see mussels and, and they do that. They take it and they literally, you know, they just use it to squeeze it and pull it. And it's, it's, um, it's just funny because even though I've seen them do it, I still just use a fork or just my finger. Uh, well,
1: I challenge you next time that you eat this sickening dish to employ this French technique.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it worked with the steamers, but, you know, what are you going to do?
1: I mean, the steamers have a lot to grab, though, right? (laughs) I feel like mussels would be harder because they're more inside the shell. The steamers have all sorts of dangling parts to pick
0: at. You you might be right. I was just going to double back on one thing, because when we were talking about what you made last week, one of the things that I made, I've made now, like, several times, so it doesn't account for last week. You know, when you go to, like, a, a, you know, sort of tapas-type restaurant, you know, like, there's a... Chain sort of like you know Barcelona and things like that, and one of the most popular traditional dishes is I think it's called bat- batatas brava. Patatas brava. Yeah, and 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 they're just uh, small potatoes that are basically fried, but but there's a certain texture and flavor to it, and I just wanted to say that I have kind of perfected a very close version of it that doesn't you even use butter. You always have to use a lot of fat or something, but it's basically small potatoes that are cut into like maybe like a quarter inch to a half inch, um, you know, size things. Then, a lot of olive oil, because you real, I realized you need a lot of oil to make it work. And then salt and pepper, and then very generous until you can see it sort of change the color of everything, of smoked paprika or sweet paprika, whatever your favorite paprika is, in a sort of galvanized or some sort of good metal open pan, in the oven, 400 degrees, and a longer time than you think you want to cook it, like 40, 45 minutes. And uh-huh. they- they taste just like those batatas bravas, whatever, which I think are often used. They use a lot of butter or they do. Anyway, and they're so good. And I've made them a million times now because Natalie and other people just like, these are amazing. Because you want it to get a kind of a crisp edge to it. It's super easy. Again, the trick is lots of olive oil. You know, you really toss it in a lot of oil and a lot of paprika. They They're just great. Try it sometime.
1: Do you have to boil the potatoes first?
0: No, not at all. I, I bet you in the fancy. You don't
1: parboil them. You just put them in raw into the oven.
0: No, but there's those little potatoes that you can buy in stores now. You know that are only like, you know, they like the size of a like a of of a little egg or golf ball or something. You know. Oh. No. So I just cut them into smaller pieces, like half, you know, half or a third. Um, and no, I don't parboil them. And they, the trick I really think is to have a good. The best thing I have is something. That's a super old flea market find, um, galvanized, like open pan, like roasting pan. Something about that silver galvanized surface that creates this sort of hot, crispy edge. But but whatever you got, it's going to work. Um, but I do think it needs to be somewhat deep, like a, a roasting pan that has like two inches deep. Um, and I do think that metal is better than earthenware to get that crust. I guess it's because of the way the metal gets hot differently than... Um, you know uh, porcelain or earthenware or whatever but it came out really great and it really does taste like that spanish uh tapas potato so give it a shot that's my that's my tip of the week and the last thing in terms of tip of the week that i wanted to talk about was i was listening to a podcast that comes again from seattle but they recommended a it came from a website that's called the kitchen without an n it's t-h-i K i t c h n with no e, not without an n, without an e. Anyway,
1: oh, I can't. I just
0: can't stand all of this crazy spelling of words. That's I know was it, are right. Very, it's it very drives me wild. But I'm going to give you the tip, which I have tested myself. I never knew this. Maybe you do when I say it. But it's the best way to keep tomatoes in your house if you're not eating them right away. Is it in a brown paper bag? It is not. And I've okay, tested. what is it? Well, definitely, they say never put tomatoes you want to taste good in the refrigerator. It changes the whole composition of the molecules in tomato. And that's why they get mushy or mealy. Longest lasting way to have a tomato is to store it on like uh, not in direct sunlight with a piece of scotch tape over this where the stem goes. What? Upside down, upside down. You have to turn around
1: three times before you put it down
0: you well you could but i don't know how much impact but the 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 ticket is because i did it without the tape so they said that they tested like six different ways of storing them and that this was by far the best and i must confess i had bought from hillside farms these beautiful yellow tomatoes i didn't put the piece of tape on because they said second best is to just store it upside down sure enough 10 days later, it looks exactly the same. It is not the least bit sort of rotten or weird. And and they say even longer with the tape, it has something to do with the way oxygen and bacteria are able to sort of enter through the the top.
1: Um, What do you do about little tomatoes, like cherry, like oblong, like plum type tomatoes that can't go upside
0: down? I do not know. (laughs) Uh, This was based on the larger tomatoes, but um, I did see- I I did see on the website, when you look for how to store tomatoes, uh, because I was intrigued with with this, the kitchen website. It's a really good website. Lots of tips, lots of hacks, as they say, that they do have what to do with cherry tomatoes. Um, I find cherry tomatoes in general tend to last longer anyway. They don't seem to get as gross in the fridge if you'd store them in the fridge, but I'm not- I never put
1: them in the fridge. I always leave my tomatoes out on the counter.
0: Yes. I'm telling you, I couldn't believe- how much longer it lasted just by flipping it upside down. No paper bag, no refrigerator. All that stuff is nonsense, they said. And they tested all these different ways. And it's great. So that is my really cool tip.
1: Well, I love it. Listeners, if anyone tries this, upside down tomatoes with scotch tape, send us an email about it at at gmail.com.
0: Please do. We love to hear from you. Well, Sarah, that was a lot of fun. And we are once again out of time. Bye, Sarah. Bye, Adam. Take a seat in the-